Chapter Six of the Warden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Warden by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Six: The Warden's Tea Party. After much painful doubting, on one thing only could Mister Harding resolve. He determined that at any rate he would take no offence, and that he would make this question no cause of quarrel either with Bold or with the beadsman. In furtherance of this resolution, he himself wrote a note to Mr. Bold, the same afternoon, inviting him to meet a few friends and hear some music on an evening named in the next week. Had not this little party been promised to Eleanor, in his present state of mind he would probably have avoided such gaiety. But the promise had been given, the invitations were to be written, and when Eleanor consulted her father on the subject, she was not ill-pleased to hear him say, oh i was thinking of bold so i took it into my head to write to him myself but you must write to his sister mary bold was older than her brother and at the time of our story was just over thirty she was not an unattractive young woman though by no means beautiful her great merit was the kindliness of her disposition she was not very clever nor very animated nor had she apparently the energy of her brother but she was guided by a high principle of right and wrong her temper was sweet, and her faults were fewer in number than her virtues. Those who casually met Mary Bold thought little of her, but those who knew her well loved her well, and the longer they knew her, the more they loved her. Among those who were fondest of her was Eleanor Harding, and though Eleanor had never openly talked to her of her brother, each understood the other's feelings about him. The brother and sister were sitting together when the two notes were brought in. "'How odd,' said Mary that they should send two notes. Well, if Mr. Harding becomes fashionable, the world is going to change. Her brother understood immediately the nature and intention of the peace offering, but it was not so easy for him to behave well in the matter as it was for Mr. Harding. It is much less difficult for the sufferer to be generous than for the oppressor. John Bold felt that he could not go to the warden's party. He never loved Eleanor better than he did now. He'd never so strongly felt how anxious he was to make her his wife as now, when so many obstacles to his doing so appeared in view. Yet here was her father himself, as it were, clearing away those very obstacles, and still he felt that he could not go to the house any more as an open friend. As he sat thinking of these things with the note in his hand, his sister was waiting for his decision. "'Well,' said she, I suppose we must write separate answers, and we'll both say we shall be very happy. You'll go, of course, Mary, said he, to which she readily assented. I cannot, he continued, looking serious and gloomy. I wish I could, with all my heart. And why not, John, said she. She had as yet heard nothing of the new-found abuse which her brother was about to reform, at least nothing which connected it with her brother's name. He sat thinking for a while, till he determined that it would be best to tell her at once what it was he was about. It must be done sooner or later. "'I fear I cannot go to Mr. Harding's house any more as a friend just at present.' "'Oh, John, why not?' "'Oh, you've quarreled with Eleanor.' "'No, indeed,' said he. "'I've no quarrel with her as yet.' "'What is it, John?' said she, looking at him with an anxious, loving face, for she knew well how much of his heart was there in that house which he had said he could no longer enter. "'Why,' he said at last, 
I've taken up the case of these twelve old men of Hiram's hospital, and, of course, that brings me into contact with Mr. Harding. I may have to oppose him, inter interfere with him, perhaps injure him. Mary looked at him steadily for some time before she committed herself to reply, and then merely asked him what he meant to do for the old men. Well, it's a long story, and I don't know that I can make you understand it. Uh, John Hiram made a will and left his property in charity for certain poor old men, and the proceeds, instead of going to the benefit of these men, go chiefly into the pocket of the warden and the bishop's steward. And you mean to take away from Mr. Harding his share of it? I don't know what I mean yet. I mean to inquire about it. I mean to see who is entitled to this property. I mean to see, if I can, that justice be done to the poor of the city of Barchester generally, who are in fact the legatees under the will. I mean, in short, to put the matter right, if I can. And why are you to do this, John? You might ask the same question of anybody else, said he, and according to that, the duty of righting these poor men would belong to nobody. If we are to act on that principle, the weak are never to be protected, injustice is never to be opposed, and no one is to struggle for the poor. And Bold began to comfort himself in the warmth of his own virtue. But is there no one to do this but you, who have known Mr. Harding so long? Surely, John, as a friend, as a young friend, so much younger than Mr. Harding, that's woman's logic all over, Mary. What has age to do with it? Another man might plead that he was too old, and as to his friendship, if the thing itself be right, private motives should never be allowed to interfere. Because I esteem Mr. Harding, is that a reason that I should neglect a duty which I owe to these old men? Or should I give up a work which my conscience tells me is a good one, because I regret the loss of his society? And Eleanor, John? said the sister, looking timidly into her brother's face. Eleanor, that, that is Miss Harding, if she thinks fit, that is, if her father, or rather if she, or indeed he, if they find it necessary, but there's no necessity now to talk about Eleanor Harding. But this I will say, that if she has the kind of spirit for which I give her credit, she will not condemn me for doing what I think to be a duty." and Bold consoled himself with the consolation of a Roman. Mary sat silent for a while, till at last her brother reminded her that the notes must be answered, and she got up and placed her desk before her, took out her pen and paper, wrote on it slowly. Pakenham Villas, Tuesday morning. My dear Eleanor, I... And then stopped and looked at her brother. Well, Mary, why don't you write it? Oh, John, she said. Dear John, pray think better of this. Think better of what? said he. Of this, about the hospital, of all this about Mr. Harding, of what you say about those old men. Nothing can call upon you. No duty can require you to set yourself against your oldest, your best friend. Oh, John, think of Eleanor. You'll break her heart, and your own. Nonsense, Mary. Miss Harding's heart is as safe as yours. Pray, pray, for my sake, John, give it up. You know how dearly you love her. And she came and knelt before him on the rug. Pray, give it up. You're going to make yourself and her and her father miserable. You're going to make us all miserable. And for what? For a dream of justice. You will never make those twelve men happier than they are now. 
"'You don't understand it, my dear girl,' said he, smoothing her hair with his hand. "'I do understand it, John. I understand that this is a chimera, a dream that you've got. I know well that no duty can require you to do this mad, this suicidal thing.' I know you love Eleanor Harding with all your heart, and I tell you now that she loves you as well. If there was a plain, a positive duty before you, I would be the last to bid you neglect it for any woman's love, but this. Oh, think again, before you do anything to make it necessary that you and Mr. Harding should be at a variance. He did not answer as she knelt there leaning on his knees, but by his face she thought that he was inclined to yield. At any rate, let me say that you'll go to this party. At any rate, do not break with them while your mind is in doubt. And she got up, hoping to conclude her note in the way she desired. My mind is not in doubt, at last he said, rising. I could never respect myself again were I to give way now, because Eleanor Harding is beautiful. I do love her. I would give a hand to hear her tell me what you have said, speaking on her behalf but I cannot for her sake go back from the task which I have commenced. I hope she may hereafter acknowledge and respect my motives, but I cannot now go as a guest to her father's house. And the Barchester Brutus went out to fortify his own resolution by meditations on his own virtue. Poor Mary Bold sat down and sadly finished her note, saying that she would herself attend the party, but that her brother was unavoidably prevented from doing so. I fear that she did not admire, as she should have done, the self-devotion of his singular virtue. The party went off as such parties do. There were fat old ladies in fine silk dresses, and slim young ladies in gauzy muslin frocks. Old gentlemen stood up with their backs to the empty fireplace, looking by no means so comfortable as they would have done in their own armchairs at home and young gentlemen, rather stiff about the neck, clustered near the door, not as yet sufficiently encouraged to attack the muslin frocks who awaited the battle, drawn up in a semicircular array. The warden endeavored to induce a charge, but failed signally, not having the tact of a general. His daughter did what she could to comfort the forces under her command, who took in refreshing rations of cake and tea, and patiently looked for the coming engagement but she herself, Eleanor, had no spirit for the work. The only enemy whose lance she cared to encounter was not there, and she and others were somewhat dull. Loud above all voices was heard the clear, sonorous tones of the archdeacon as he dilated to Brother Parsons of the danger of the church, of the fearful rumors of mad reforms even at Oxford, and of the damnable heresies of Dr. Whiston. Soon, however, sweeter sounds began timidly to make themselves audible. Little movements were made in a quarter notable for round stools and music stands. Wax candles were arranged in sconces, big books were brought from hidden recesses, and the work of the evening commenced. How often were those pegs twisted and retwisted before our friend found that he had twisted them enough? How many discordant scrapes gave promise of the coming harmony? How much the muslin fluttered and crumpled before Eleanor and another nymph were duly seated at the piano. How closely did that tall Apollo pack himself against the wall with his flute, long as himself, extending high over the heads of his pretty neighbors. 
into how small a corner crept that round and florid little minor cannon, and there, with skill amazing, found room to tune his accustomed fiddle. And now the crash begins. Away they go in full flow of harmony together, up hill and down dale, now louder and louder, then lower and lower, now loud, as though stirring the battle, then low, as though mourning the slain. In all, through all, and above all is heard the violoncello. Ah, not for nothing were those pegs so twisted and retwisted. Listen, listen. Now alone the saddest of instruments tells its touching tale. Silent and in awe stand fiddle, flute, and piano to hear the sorrows of their wailing brother. Tis but for a moment, before the melancholy of those low notes has been fully realized, again comes the full force of all the band. Down go the pedals, away rush twenty fingers, scouring over the bass notes with all the impetus of passion. Apollo blows till his stick-neck cloth is no better than a rope, and the minor cannon works with both arms till he falls in a syncope of exhaustion against the wall. How comes it that now, when all should be silent, when courtesy, if not taste, should make men listen? How is it, at this moment, the black-coated corps leave their retreat and begin skirmishing? One by one they creep forth and fire off little guns timidly, and without precision. Ah, oh, my men, efforts such as these will take no cities, even though the enemy should be never so open to assault. At length the more deadly artillery is brought to bear. Slowly, but with effect, the advance is made. The muslin ranks are broken and fall into confusion. The formidable array of chairs gives way. The battle is no longer between opposing regiments, but hand to hand, and foot to foot with single combatants, as in the glorious days of old, when fighting was really noble. In corners and under the shadow of curtains, behind sofas and half-hidden by doors, in retiring windows and sheltered by hanging tapestry, are blows given and returned, fatal, incurable, dealing death. Apart from this, another combat arises, more sober and more serious. The archdeacon is engaged against two prebendaries, a Percy full-blown rector assisting him in all the perils and all the enjoyments of short whist. With solemn energy do they watch the shuffled pack, and all expectant eye the coming trump. With what anxious nicety do they arrange their cards, jealous of each other's eyes. Why is that lean doctor so slow? cadaverous man with hollow jaw and sunken eye, ill-beseeming the richness of his mother church. Ah, oh, why so slow, thou meagre doctor? See how the archdeacon, speechless in his agony, deposits on the board his cards, and looks to heaven or to the ceiling for support. Hark how he sighs, as with thumbs in his waistcoat pocket, he seems to signify that the end of such torment is not yet even nigh at hand. Vain is the hope, if hope there be, to disturb that meagre doctor. With care precise he places every card, weighs well the value of each mighty ace, each guarded king and comfort-giving queen, speculates on knave and ten, counts all his suits, and sets his price upon the whole. At length a card is led, and quick three others fall upon the board. The little doctor leads again, while with lustrous eye his partner absorbs the trick. Now thrice has this been done. Thrice has constant fortune favored the brace of prebendaries, ere the archdeacon rouses himself to the battle. But at the fourth assault he pins to the earth a prostrate king. 
laying low his crown and sceptre, bushy beard and lowering brow with a poor deuce. "'As David did Goliath,' says the archdeacon, pushing over the four cards to his partner. Then a trump is led, then another trump, then a king, and then an ace, and then a long ten, which brings down from the meagre doctor his only remaining tower of strength, his cherished queen of trumps. "'What, no second club?' says the archdeacon to his partner. "'Only one club,' mutters from his inmost stomach the Percy Rector, who sits there red-faced, silent, impervious, careful, a safe but not a brilliant ally. But the archdeacon cares not for many clubs or for none. He dashes out his remaining cards with a speed most annoying to his antagonists, pushes over to them some four cards as their allotted portion, shoves the remainder across the table to the red-faced rector, calls out, two by cards and two by honors and the odd trick last time, marks a treble under the candlestick, and has dealt round the second pack before the meagre doctor has calculated his losses. And so went off the warden's party, and men and women arranging shawls and shoes declared how pleasant it had been, and Mrs. Goodenough, the red-faced rector's wife, pressing the warden's hand, declared she had never enjoyed herself better, which showed how little pleasure she allowed herself in this world, as she had sat the whole evening through in the same chair without occupation, not speaking, and unspoken to. And Matilda Johnson, when she allowed young Dixon of the bank to fasten her cloak round her neck, thought that two hundred pounds a year in a little cottage would really do for happiness. Besides, he was sure to be manager some day, and Apollo, folding his flute into his pocket, felt that he had acquitted himself with honor, and the archdeacon pleasantly jingled his gains. But the meagre doctor went off without much audible speech, muttering ever and anon as he went, three and thirty points, three and thirty points. And so they all were gone, and Mr. Harding was left alone with his daughter. What had passed between Eleanor Harding and Mary Bold need not be told. It is, indeed, a matter of thankfulness that neither the historian nor the novelist hears all that is said by their heroes or heroines, or how would three volumes or twenty suffice? In the present case so little of this sort have I overheard, that I live in hopes of finishing my work within three hundred pages, and of completing that pleasant task, a novel in one volume. But something had passed between them and as the warden blew out the wax candles and put his instrument into its case, his daughter stood sad and thoughtful by the empty fireplace, determined to speak to her father, but irresolute as to what she would say. "'Well, Eleanor,' said he, "'are you for bed?' "'Yes,' she said, moving. "'I suppose so, but, Papa, Mr. Bold was not here to-night. Do you know why not?' "'He was asked. I wrote to him myself,' said the warden. "'But do you know why he did not come, Papa?' "'Well, Eleanor, I, I could guess, but it's no use guessing at such things, my dear. "'What makes you look so earnest about it?' "'Oh, Papa, do tell me,' she exclaimed, throwing her arms round him and looking into his face. "'What is he going to do? What is it all about? Is there any—any—any—' any, any? "'She didn't know what word to use.' any danger danger my dear what sort of danger danger to you danger of trouble and of loss and of oh papa why haven't you told me of all this before 
Mr. Harding was not the man to judge harshly of any one, much less of the daughter whom he now loved better than any living creature. But still he did judge her wrongly at this moment. He knew that she loved John Bold. He fully sympathized in her affection. Day after day he thought more of the matter, and with the tender care of a loving father, tried to arrange in his own mind how matters might be so managed that his daughter's heart should not be made the sacrifice to the dispute which was likely to exist between him and Bold. Now, when she spoke to him for the first time on the subject, it was natural that he should think more of her than of himself, and that he should imagine that her own cares, and not his, were troubling her. He stood silent before her a while as she gazed up into his face, and then kissing her forehead he placed her on the sofa. "'Tell me, Nellie,' he said. He only called her Nellie in his kindest, softest, sweetest moods, and yet all his moods were kind and sweet. "'Tell me, Nellie, do you like Mr. Bold much?' She was quite taken aback by the question. I will not say that she had forgotten herself, and her own love in thinking about John Bold, and while conversing with Mary. She certainly had not done so. She had been sick at heart to think that a man of whom she could not but own to herself that she loved him, of whose regard she had been so proud, that such a man should turn against her father to ruin him. She had felt her vanity hurt, that his affection for her had not kept him from such a course, had he really cared for her he would not have risked her love by such an outrage but her main fear had been for her father and when she spoke of danger it was of danger to him and not to herself she was taken aback by the question altogether do i like him papa yes nelly do you like him why shouldn't you like him but that's a poor word do do you love him she sat still in his arms without answering him. She certainly had not prepared herself for an avowal of affection, intending, as she had done, to abuse John Bold herself, and to hear her father do so also. "'Come, my love,' said he, "'let us make a clean breast of it. Do you tell me what concerns yourself, and I will tell you what concerns me in the hospital.' And then, without waiting for an answer, he described to her as best he could the accusation that was made about Hiram's will, the claims which the old men put forward, what he considered the strength and what the weaknesses of his own position, the course which Bold had taken, and that which he presumed he was about to take, and then by degrees, without further question, he presumed on the fact of Eleanor's love, and spoke of that love as a feeling which he could in no way disapprove. He apologized for Bold, excused what he was doing, nay, praised him for his energy and intentions, made much of his good qualities, and harped on none of his foibles. Then, reminding his daughter how late it was, and comforting her with much assurance which he hardly felt himself, he sent her to her room with flowing eyes and a full heart. When Mr. Harding met his daughter at breakfast the next morning, there was no further discussion on the matter, nor was the subject mentioned between them for some days. Soon after the party, Mary Bold called at the hospital, but there were various persons in the drawing-room at the time, and she therefore said nothing about her brother. On the day following, John Bold met Miss Harding in one of the quiet, sombre, shaded walks of the close. He was most anxious to see her, but unwilling to call at the warden's house, and had in truth waylaid her in her private haunts. 
My sister tells me that you had a delightful party the other evening. I was so sorry I could not be there. We were all sorry, said Eleanor with dignified composure. I believe, Miss Harding, you understand why at, at this moment. And Bold hesitated, muttered, stopped, commenced his explanation again, and again broke down. Eleanor would not help him in the least. I think my sister explained to you, Miss Harding. Pray don't apologize, Mr. Bold. My father will, I am sure, always be glad to see you if you like to come to the house now as formerly. Nothing has occurred to alter his feelings. Of your own views you are, of course, the best judge. Your father is all that is kind and generous. He always was so. But you, Miss Harding, yourself, I hope you will not judge me harshly because Mr. Bold, said she, you may be sure of one thing. I shall always judge my father to be right, and those who oppose him I shall judge to be wrong. If those who do not know him oppose him, I shall have charity enough to believe that they are wrong through error of judgment. But should I see him attacked by those who ought to know him and to love him and revere him, of such I shall be constrained to form a different opinion. And then curtsying low she sailed on, leaving her lover in anything but a happy state of mind. End of chapter 6 Recording by Jessica Louise, St. Paul, Minnesota